Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for spending time with me today. I'm looking forward to this. I've got guide talk happening here any minute now, according to my calculations. So I'm looking forward to that. The uh, power panel is uh, in place, and I think they're ready to go. So I've got Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, Pastor Justin Jepson, and we're still waiting for Dr. Peter Capson. Gentlemen, welcome. Hi there, Bill. I just want you to know that uh, for quality and training purposes, this show may be recorded and monitored. Yeah, that's more than understandable. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we've got a lot of buzz on somebody's line, so we'll try to clear that up. But nice to have you all here. Hey, I'm sorry. I, I'm off speakerphone. Does that help? That's way better. Thank you so sorry. much. Thank you. This technology uh, is tricky at times. So I want to let listeners know that we're open to your questions. Let me know what they are. 877-933-2484. 877-933-2484. And... I want to just remind you guys who are on the phone, my guests, that if, you, uh, if you're not talking, and can, you can mute your phone. That does make things easier. Uh, and then when it's uh, your turn to talk, unmute and talk. All right, here's my first question, guys. Um, how would you talk about the blessing of suffering? How would you explain this idea? Well, Bill, I'm glad you asked that question. I just taped our TV show a couple hours ago. And here's the uh, story I told. Um, here's a little boy with a sailboat, and he puts it into the, the water, and uh, the lake starts to take his little sailboat too far, so he runs up to a stranger, Mr., can you get my sailboat? I, I can't swim. And the man says, sure, little boy, picks up some rocks, starts throwing it at the sailboat. <laughs> and the little boy starts crying, but yeah, now you're going to hurt me. And, and the man says, no, watch. And he threw the, the rocks just beyond the sailboat that created waves that pulled the sailboat back into shore and the little boy got his boat. And and the question I asked is, why doesn't God fill our storm quicker? Why does he uh, let our boat rock quite a bit? And and my point was, it's my suffering that bring me to Christ. If everything's easy, I kind of slack off. But when I'm suffering, that's what brings me close to the Lord. So you know, much as I don't want to pray, you know, Lord, throw rocks at my boat, it's good for me. <laughs> and, and that's what James says, count it all joy when you encounter trials, because it strengthens your faith. Yeah, let me throw this verse in. This is Philippians 3.10, which is one of my favorite verses. It says, I want to know Christ and experience the, the power of his resurrection. And then I also want to share in his suffering, even into uh, death. And I think... Who wants to share in the suffering, and what does that suffering look like, and how do we explain this to people? So, Tom, I appreciated your your uh, first analogy. Anyone else want to jump in? Yeah, one of the real analogies. Go ahead. go ahead, Tom. No, no, go right ahead. Well, you know, I was just going to say. I mean, uh, Bill, I was actually thinking of that exact that that exact verse, and then along, you know, Tom mentioned James one, and I was thinking of even Romans five, of just that that idea of there's there's a rejoicing. 
um, in the suffering because what it ultimately produces, and even, you know, to share in the sufferings of Christ, and even it was the joy set before him that he endured the cross. And so that I think that uh, God has so designed it in his, in his wisdom, and even though we don't understand necessarily why at times, but the the how of our the producing of Christ-like character, that, that suffering is, is necessary for that. And, you know, I, I think another analogy that I use is that idea of kind of the wind and the trees and the, the wind going through trees and then the roots and that, um, you know, the more of the resistance that above ground that happens, the deeper the roots need to go into the soil. And so I think that at least the blessing of suffering in my, in my life in the times where I've, you know, suffered, whether that be, um, you know, physically or, um, emotionally, relationally, even spiritually, um, it's 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 caused a deeper deeper roots of trust to really be formed in the soil of, of God's word and and my relationship with Him. But I but I love Bill. You brought that up. That you know that that idea of the fellowship, the sharing of sufferings. There's this idea that we're never in suffering alone, and that idea of that blessing of suffering um, is meant to be something experienced and expressed within the context of Christian community. Mm-hmm. I like that, Justin. Thank you so much for that. Tom Parrish. I think sometimes that we make the mistake of thinking all suffering is good for the Christian. If you look at the Philippians 3.11 again, it says here that I may share his sufferings. That is, the things that Jesus valued and stood for are the things that when we suffer for them as well, mm. then, we are, then we are blessed as a result. And I believe that's when we're drawn closer to the Lord Jesus. That's when we have a better understanding— and we live in a day and age now with so much confusion in politics, the media, and the culture. Uh, this is the chance for Christians to stand up for the truth of Jesus Christ, and many of them in our culture are going to suffer. But that kind of suffering is the good kind that draws us closer to Jesus. Now, when I go say something stupid, <laughs> or I hurt someone, and I suffer as a result, I'm not going to get any blessing out that at all, except probably a good whack across the head. But when I suffer for the things that Jesus suffered for, yeah, then I'm going to be more like him and grow into him. And I understand what Paul is saying, and I agree with that. I like. And I think, yeah, Paul, Tom, I think that's the, well, sorry, I was going to interject. But I think that's what Peter, you know, was talking about in First and Second Peter, that, you know, who, yeah. you shouldn't rejoice to be happy about, you know, the suffering that comes as a result of your sin. But if, when you're obedient, Christ, that yes. that'll inevitably you'll inevitably encounter suffering, and that's the type of suffering that produces a deeper Christ-likeness. But I would exactly. say when I would say when I suffer for my sins, God is disciplining me, and Hebrews twelve says that's good for me too. So uh, right, yeah, it's just a different a form of suffering. <laughs> yes. Okay. I think Peter uh, Kaftner is on as well. Peter, are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? I can hear you nice and clear. That's great. Yeah, I've got a hate-hate relationship with technology, so there you go. <laughs> um, I, I gather you guys are talking about suffering and, and the value or sometimes the difficulty of it related to our, our Christian journey. Well, the question really was, you know, the, how, do, how would you explain the blessing of suffering to somebody? Mm. I mean, because that's going to be uh, hard for people to get excited about. What, what do you mean the blessing of suffering? I don't like suffering. Yeah, I know. That's such a good question. And what these guys are talking about, I just uh, I completely resonate with, too. I was uh, just in class here earlier today, 
and we were talking a little bit about what it means to increasingly have an undivided heart, a heart where you're walking on the pathways of life, or at least the one pathway of life that is so narrow versus the pathways of life uh, that are, or pathways of death that are so wide and so many and filled with destruction. And just talked about how often those pathways of life, where we travel down them, uh, assuming that as we walk down that pathway, um, we're going to find life and we actually don't. And, and that might be pursuing a, a job and thinking that if I get the right job, I'm going to feel whole and holy in heart or uh, the right relationship or, or those sorts of things. And I use an example from my own life in which uh, early in my life, I was uh, identified as a, sort of this young, um, next megachurch pastor sort of person in the church that I was working in for with about 6,000 people in it and and was in my late 20s, early 30s and, and speaking to that many people on the weekends. And it was, you know, you guys, it was it was really intoxicating and, and really heady kinds of stuff. But I remember thinking back then, gosh, it seems like I should actually care about the people far more than I really do. And, and it, it does seem like I should actually love my wife and my kids far more than I do. And, and I asked God a question to help about that. And that's, that's always a really dangerous question to ask. And so it's, it's a longer story than, than we can talk about on, on the radio show. But I ended up going through a journey where for a pretty extended period of time, I had been diagnosed with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease and, and thought that I was uh, in my last couple of years of life. And there was a lot of suffering that went into that. But what it did is it revealed that suffering. Uh, when, when I thought I was going to die, I will say this, I didn't care anymore about building some transient career. I, I could see the falsity of climbing up a ladder. I could see the idols that I was pursuing and all of that, even though it was ministry and was supposed to be the good things for God's kingdom. You can, uh, you can really be walking down some pretty bad pathways that way. And, uh, and I remember uh, the other side of it just saying, gosh, I actually just love being with my kids. Um, I, I love uh, being in the presence of people and laughing and freedom and some of these things. And, and there isn't anything other than suffering that could have taught me that because it really stripped away the idols that I had been given my, uh, giving myself to. And, and that's just one example. I'm sure our listeners have a ton of them where they say, gosh, that was a really, really difficult season. But I can say on the other side of it, my heart is less divided because of it. And so I would say that the blessing of suffering is that it strips away the idols that otherwise are going to suck a lot of life out of us if we keep giving ourselves over to them. Nice, Nicely said, Peter. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I will like to jump to Matthew uh, chapter 10, verse 28. It says, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What does that teach us about God's character? Live radio. <laughs> now, there, there really is right and wrong. There is truth and there is falsehood. And what it comes down to is that the message of Jesus, and I saw a poster the other day I really liked. It said, the first time Jesus came, the Jews were expecting a warrior. They got a lamb. The next time he comes, people are looking for a lamb, and they're going to get a lawyer who, I mean, a, not a lawyer, but they're going to get, a ju you know, a warrior who's going to judge us. And I think we forget that. We forget that entirely in this process, that the Lord himself, you know, is the final judge, and that we have to be very serious about uh, serving him. And he has the power to cast us, not only, you know, take us in, out of this life, but take us out eternally, if he wants to, and cast us into hell. So it's a message that most people don't want to hear, but it's a message that resonates with the reality of Jesus and his suffering on the cross. And he dearly loves us, and he dearly wants everybody saved, 
But at the same time, don't mess with Jesus. He's mm. dead serious about coming to him. All right, everybody hang on to their thoughts. We'll come back to that uh, question about God's character out of Matthew 10, 28. You're listening to Guide Talk. We'll be right back. So glad you're with me this afternoon. We've got Guide Talk happening and the extended version today. So we're going to be going for a little while longer. We're going to take your questions. We'd love to hear from you. We're chatting right now about Matthew 10, 28, trying to figure out uh, a little bit more about God's character. This verse says, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both body, soul and body in hell. That's a pretty powerful verse talking about God's character. Who wants to go next? Well, I will. I mean, I could jump I mean, in. Some, oh, go ahead. Yeah, some, Tom, that's fine. Well, some, sometimes you hear people who claim Christ as their Lord say things like, well, my loving Jesus would never send anyone to hell. Mm-hmm. Or, or you hear this, I don't think we should scare people with hell. We should just preach the love of God. Well, let me repeat what you just said, Bill. Matthew chapter 10. Don't fear men. All they can do is kill your body. Fear God who can kill your body and your soul in hell. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, I tell you, fear him. So I think there's a healthy fear of God. I mean, I'm not afraid that I'm going to hell when I die. I, I trust Christ's atonement covers all my sins. But if I were to turn away from Christ, live in impenitent sin, it would be a healthy thing for me to, to fear God. I mean, I, I think it was John Piper who made this analogy. Uh, he's talking about, I think, Luke 10, where Jesus says, don't fear, and the implication is God because you're of more value than many sparrows. But in the same chapter, he says, fear God, he can send you to hell. So am I supposed to fear God or not? Well, if I'm, if I'm driving in a car, I'm normally not afraid. But if my tire starts to go over the curb into the ditch, then I get scared. And, and if I'm following Christ, trusting him, fear not, you're of more value than many sparrows. But if I turn away from Christ, if I live in impenitent sin, I should fear God so much that I get back on the road. Yeah. Okay, Peter. Yeah, I love the verses that are prior and kind of surround this passage of Scripture, too. One of them, Jesus says to his disciples before all of this, he says, So I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. And he says, Be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils, be flogged in the synagogues. And then on my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And so I think part of what Jesus is doing in this moment is saying that uh, you are going to be led by my spirit to bear witness all around the Mediterranean world. And as you do, you're going to be um, some of the greatest power of that world is going to confront you. You're going to be standing in front of some of the greatest earthly power around us and, and the governors and the kings. Uh, but don't be cowed by that. Don't be wowed by that. That is that is a temporary and transient earthly power. They have absolutely they may even kill you and they will kill some of you but they have no ability to to speak into the eternal reality of your future. So do not fear them, because at the end of the day, even though they may kill your body, they are not going to kill your soul. Stand in confidence, bear witness to my kingdom, because you're serving a God that has the, the final authority uh, over all eternity. So, so why would you worry? Which is then he says right after that passage about the idea that I know all the hairs on your head. Don't be afraid. You're more, worth more than many sparrows. All of that in that context, it, it's really putting God in his... Uh, in the right place, in in 
I, I often think that we give more authority to some of the earthly powers around us, right, than we do the king of heaven. And, uh, and he's just flipping that on its head in this passage. Yeah, I agree. I resonate with all of what's been shared already. And I, I think, too, what Jesus is driving at in the context of this whole chapter is really a, a kingdom value system in, in terms of what type of perspective are we going to have? Is it merely one that um, has its, its, its eyes gazed just on this earth or that of eternity? You know, and I think, uh, you know, afterwards, it, Jesus talks about in verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I think in talking about the cost of discipleship as well, in terms of, you know, um, you, know you know, we get this idea of that when Jesus said, follow me, and really truly be a disciple, this idea, it's, it's really about losing our life. It's an exchange of our, of our life for his life. And so I think what he's making clear here is, on one hand, there there will be a cost to obedience. Um, and it's going to lose, we're going to, we're going to lose our reputation. We might lose our possessions. We might even lose relationships in the context of our own family. But the cost of non-discipleship is even greater because that, and they both yeah. have eternal consequences. And so uh, I think this is part of what Jesus is getting at is we need to have an eternal perspective, that kingdom perspective, and what we truly value, the things of eternity rather than the things of this earth. Just before we went on the air, I was yeah. talking with my wife. Now, four weeks ago, Yesterday, she had double knee replacement surgery, so she's up walking. She decided to walk down the block and back today, and she took our German shepherd. Uh, His name is Thunder, weighs about 100 pounds. She's walking down the street with him, and a gentleman comes out from his yard and says to her, that's a beautiful dog. Is he friendly? And she said, most of the time. (laughs) And he goes, what? She goes, he's very friendly. If you're kind and, you know, you don't do anything, you shouldn't. But if you grab me or try to hurt me, He'll be a different animal altogether. And I think that's the part we forget about. It's, it's also like C.S. Lewis talking about the lion in Narnia. We forget that this Lord is very friendly and very loving. But go against his will, and you meet another portion of him you don't want to meet. Yeah, and, you know, we should add to that, Tom, and it's good for us. When God gets ferocious yeah. against us for our sins— over the sins of others, that's good for us. The reason God hates sin is because it hurts us. And, I mean, if you see your son dabbling in heroin, uh, you're right and, and, and healthy to do everything you can to get him away from that. And so when God right. disciplines us for our sins, that's for our good. It's a loving thing when he does that. All right, here's another question I have. And you guys are pastors or theologians, so this... This is going to be a, a straightforward question. Do you are you more prone uh, to get your worth from performance or from being made in the image of God? Depends on the day. For Depends me. on the day. <laughs> <laughs> Say more. <laughs> well, I mean, well, I think it's like I, anybody else, right? I, you know, it's yeah. No, just that. I, you know, it's and it's funny because um, it's almost like it's more subtle when things are going well from a performance standpoint uh, that you're getting worth from it. It's pretty obvious when I, you know, fall into the throes of some sort of uh, depression or something like that. If things aren't going well, it's pretty obvious to say, hey, I shouldn't be getting my worth from this. But I think it's a lot trickier when things are going well. And you're like, hey, it's awesome. And you're not realizing that it's just the you know, other side of the same coin. You're You're still getting your worth from it. So I think that's to, to start out your day in a different kind of way and, and recognize and even just say those things out loud, I think can be really helpful for anchoring the day. 
There's a Christian. Yeah, I think about, about your life's relationship. Ahead. How many, how many people do you have in your life that accept you for just who you are, knowing everything about you? Maybe a mom, maybe a dad, maybe a sibling. Who knows? But the vast majority of people rate us on our behavior, or on what we produce. And I think it's so easy to project that just on the Lord. And so when I am down, as you were mentioning, uh, when I'm hurting, when I make mistakes, uh, I, I look at my behavior and I know that I've got to get better, if, you know, for the Lord to like me in my crazy thinking. But the reality is when I finally discovered that my identity is in Christ by what Jesus has done on the cross for me and by his shed blood, I began to look at myself differently, not as a perfect human being, not as somebody that's always got his act together, but someone who is identified with Jesus because Jesus is totally identified with me. Yeah, and there's yeah, a, um, a, I really... There's a, go ahead, Justin. No, I was going to say, I think for me, it, that, that it certainly is, as, you know, Peter and I kind of said at the same time, depends on the day or maybe it depends on the hour. You know, sometimes it can fluctuate, but um, I, t- I find when I when I start kind of bending towards, you know, basing my, my value or worth on performance. It's, it's really, I'm, I'm forgetting who I am. I'm forgetting my identity. And I think one of the pieces that I've, that's been so helpful for me is, I mean, I've, I've written out and, and even memorized a personal identity statement that, that I need to tell myself every day in the morning when I'm driving into work, I, 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 talk, I talk to God through it and talk and just remind myself of who I am in him. And that um, my first call my first call is, is one of intimacy, not, the, not, not of ministry. And so um, I, things can go horribly wrong. I could be totally fail. I could fall and, and still be joyful and realize that, you know, um, my, his love for me is still, the, is still the same. And I think to, you know, to Tom's point too, that needs to also be incarnated by the community that you're in. And for me, that's, I mean, uh, you know, I come home to, with my wife and spend time with my two little kids just hanging out on the carpet of our living room floor. Like, they, they don't know what I did that day or didn't do. They just know that I'm here and that I'm with them. And I think this that simplicity, simple reminder that my call is simply to be with God um, and who I am in Him is, is, is it's a daily battle, um, but, but it's, it's one that, is, that we need to wage, uh, <laughs> for me, moment by moment, day by day. There's a great book called The Search for Significance, and the whole point of that book is that we are valuable, we are important because God made us, God redeemed us, God is sanctifying us, and it's my relation, it's God's grace toward me that makes me valuable. And if I try to find my worth or my value in the fact that I'm a pastor or I did this sermon good or whatever, well, what happens when you retire? Is your is your value out the window? And the point of the book is make sure you're maintaining, uh, like Justin just said, who you are in Christ is always true, whether you've got a job or not or pastorate or not, and just to maintain your relationship with the Lord because it's grace that gives you your new value and not your performance. Great, great comment, Tom Brock. Let me take a little break. You're listening to Guide Talk, and we'd love to hear your questions or an issue you would like us to talk about, 877-93-FAITH, 877-933-2484. The power panel is Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, Justin Jepson, and Peter Kaffner. We'll be right back.
We're back with Guide Talk. Let me know what your questions are, what issues you'd like us to talk about. All right, guys, here's a question. How do you deal with unanswered prayer? That's a, yeah, that's a great question and a really difficult one. Um, I think for me, I, 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 I try to always go back to just the primary purpose of prayer um, isn't necessarily just to get answers um, to my request. And usually what that, that, that means is I've, I've been praying about something and that situation hasn't changed or that person hasn't come to Christ yet, or I haven't received a breakthrough or healing or whatever else that is. And I think I, I'm reminded my I, I reminded of just a I can't remember who first told me this, but it's just the idea that God's God's answers are always better than our request, mm, and that, like that that sometimes the sometimes the answer really is um, if I'm praying about a situation and a circumstance and the circumstance isn't changing at least in my experience that usually means God has a deeper purpose and He wants to change me before He changes my circumstance so that when He answers my prayer. I actually have the character formed within me to know how to actually steward it well. Let me show you how human I really am, guys. I've been a pastor for 40-some years. When I did get my prayers answered, there's still a part of me that gets angry. There's a part of me that wants to shake my fist yeah. and say, how can you do this, Lord? I mean, you read the Psalms, like Psalm 10. I was just looking at it. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And I think that's the experience of an awful lot of people. What I appreciate about the Psalms is that the Lord has already built this into his word because he's not going to answer every prayer the way we want it at the moment we want it. And we're not very patient people. And so through the Psalms, he invites us to argue with him. And I don't mean that in a, in a bad sense, but to literally stand before the Lord and say, I don't get you, Jesus. You called me to do this. You've said in your word that when I do this, you will do this. I'm not seeing it. Help me to see because I don't understand what's going on. And I tell you guys, honestly, it's kept me sane over the years because as a pastor, I ran into things I had no answer for. That's pretty honest. I appreciate that, Tom Parrish. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Bill, what I would say, I think God answers all our prayers, but sometimes his answer is no. Mm -hmm. Uh, Often his answer is wait. And so, I mean, and if I can quote Billy Graham's wife again, she said, I'm glad God has not answered all my prayers. If he had, I would have married the wrong man five times. And and when God doesn't answer our prayer, we got to just stop and think, well, he knows better than I do. Maybe if I got that thing I want, it would hurt me, you know, so. Yeah, I know for me that I would be very tempted to take the reins uh, quite a bit, you know, give God a couple of days. And if something's not working out, you sort of <laughs> you know, start trying to make it happen yourself. So that's uh, I'm not saying that's the right way to handle it. But unfortunately, that is the way that I often will handle it. And, and usually then it takes about a week of that before you you say, wait a second, <laughs> this seems like it's not a great idea. Uh, and so, yeah, that's um, there. there's a lot of learning in that for sure. Another listener asked, uh, curious if God has ever given you a dream that has shaken or changed your life. I have a number of times. Yeah, yeah. And too. The, devil, the devil has given me dreams, too. <laughs> but God has given me dreams that have really helped me. Yep, he has. Can you be more specific, Tom Brock? Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, real quick. Um, I had a dream once that I, this was, uh, I had a sinful week and I was, I repented and God forgive me, but, uh, I had a dream that I was being chased by this little animal and it barked real loud, 
but it was a little animal. It scared me to death. It chased me up in a tree. And I'm up in the tree shivering, and this thing's at the bottom of the tree going, ar, 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 ar. And, and in the dream, I'm thinking, I'm never going to get down because that thing won't leave. <laughs> and, and then a Christian came along, pointed his finger at the thing and said, in the name of Jesus, go. And the thing ran away going, ar, ar, ar. And I came down from the tree, and I said to the Christian, but what if it comes back? And the Christian said, just start praising the Lord. It can't stand that. And I woke up with two thoughts. Number one, sometimes Tom Brock gets so up in his own tree, he needs another Christian to get him down. And the second thing I learned is when I'm under temptation, that is the time to start singing a hymn, uh, start singing a worship song, turn on the, the, the worship CDs. Worship is a great way of defeating the devil in my life. So there's a dream I had. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah, I remember, I think it was uh, maybe 30, it was, it was, I think, 30 years ago that I was um, just in the middle of struggling through something, um, feeling like, gosh, I didn't have any purpose, I didn't have this, I didn't have that, and and I was, uh, I had a dream that night, and I was climbing a mountain, and it was like every step of climbing this mountain was just complete drudgery. I could barely make any headway at all, uh, maybe an inch here, an inch there, and I finally got so frustrated in, uh, in, in climbing that mountain, I finally just shouted out, I can't do it. And then I found myself on the top of the mountain and uh, and woke up from there. And it's, you know, I think for people that have had dreams that that seem different than just sort of I'm processing my day in really weird ways kinds of dreams, when, when there really is a spiritual component to those dreams, uh, they, they tend to stand out and they, they tend to etch themselves into you a little bit more uh, than just sort of the run of the mill dream. And that one has really etched itself into me for a lifetime, some of those 30 years of saying, you know, you struggle and you struggle and you struggle and you think you can do it by yourself and and you you feel like you're just climbing through quicksand so often. But in that particular dream, it wasn't until I shouted out, I can't do it, that I found myself where I wanted to go. And and it's always called to mind to me that beatitude, the, the first one where it says, blessed are the poor in spirit or blessed are, are those that know they can't do it. They don't have what it takes for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And and it's such, I think that that dream consistent with scripture uh, has has been a reminder for a lifetime of those times where you feel like you're just climbing that that mountain and you can't make it. That that the invitation is actually different than greater effort. It's actually a, uh, an invitation to surrender. I like that. It's interesting. Yeah, I was in high school. I thought I fell in love with a young woman in high school. We dated off and on for three years. Uh, her mother unfortunately committed suicide during that time which drew us even closer together. Make a long story short, um, we both went off to college and broke up. The problem was we played Romeo and Juliet for a while, trying to get back together, and it didn't work out and all, all that. And I really was frustrated. And I spent about six, seven months saying, Lord, I thought she was the one. What's going on? What's going on? And I'll be honest, guys, I had a dream one night, and uh, my wife, Jan, we've been married to for 48 years, I saw her plain as day in that dream and the lord impressed on my heart i can't tell you i heard a voice this is the one six months later i'm at the university of toledo in the cafeteria and this woman stands up at a table about five tables away and it's her hmm. and i told the guy sitting next to me that's my wife and he said what's <laughs> her name i said i have no idea and he said you're crazy and i said i agree <laughs> uh, two years later we were married wow and that was 48 wow. years ago wow great story Interesting. Wow. All right. Uh, God, yeah. 
Oh, go ahead, Justin. Well, yeah, I, I'm trying to pick which one, I guess, but I, I think the, yeah, I think this is such an interesting question, and um, I, I mean, I wish we could interact more with, with sometimes with these questions, but I. I had one in particular that really shifted my mindset when I was in college in terms of just the spiritual battle over my family. And um, I've been praying. This also goes back to unanswered prayer. I've been praying for for more than a decade for my for my dad's salvation. And I remember when I was a senior in college and there was this moment of breakthrough where I, I was just really frustrated. I felt like we had hit kind of just hitting this block. I didn't know where to go. I feel like I've said everything I know I could say. I've shared the gospel as best as I could. I've prayed the best way I know how, and there just wasn't any change. And um, I had this dream where I was in the car with my family, and there was, uh, uh, without getting into too much detail, essentially there was some type of evil presence approaching the vehicle. My dad got out to try to confront this thing, but it wasn't, and I knew for some, whatever reason, that he didn't, he wasn't able to do what he was supposed, he didn't have the power or authority to, to, to send this thing away. And so I got out and started shouting at it in the name of Jesus to leave and to go. And, mm. and, it, and, it, and it moved and it, and it went away. And my, I got back in the car with my parents and we drove off. And it was this reminder to me of God calling me out as a young, I mean, I think I was 20, 21 at the time, and moving from a place of timidity in my faith in terms of my, my role and my context to my family to really a place of, um, of kind of a humble authority, recognizing where, what Jesus has called me to. And then, and it was shortly within that time, I just felt like there was spiritual ground that was taken back and that there was a sense of redemption and some amazing gospel conversations that took place around that time and in my relationship with my dad in particular. And but yet at the same time, um, I'm still praying for him and I'm still praying. And um, it was around that same time God gave me, it wasn't a dream, it was almost a vision in the context of worship of my dad um, on his knees with his hands raised, praising Jesus. And I still hold on to that. Wow. And I'm still believing in faith wow. that God is going to cause him to be born again. And he's going to enter into and experience the abundant life of the kingdom on this side of eternity. <laughs> and um, just to be wow. be more, uh, my dad's recently diagnosed with liver cancer. And I don't know what is going to happen with that. Um, and he's in the, in the road for a potential transplant. But I just I sense a softening there and, uh, and an openness and receptivity. And so, um, yeah, sometimes God uses those dreams to, to encourage us and to help us to persevere in prayer. Can I add something here, Bill? Yes, Tom. Go, Tom Brock, go ahead. You know, uh, I've, I've preached before. We've got to determine whether a dream is from God, the devil, or pizza. And what I mean by that is <laughs> I, I, I had a dream when I was in ninth grade where Jesus said, God's time will come in 18 years. 18 years from when I was in ninth grade is 1986. What happened? Even though I was on my toes that year, absolutely nothing happened. <laughs> I, I had a dream. Years, My sister died when she was 32, and a few years later, I had a dream that my dead sister, Ruthann, is floating outside my bedroom window. And I said, Ruthann, I said, is is Jesus coming soon? Oh, yes, he's coming soon. And then she started to say weird, unbiblical stuff. And I woke up, and I w- when I woke in the dream, I was sitting up in bed talking to her through the window. When I woke up, I was sitting up, and I really wonder if this didn't really happen. But I said to myself, that was a $3 bill. 
you know, Satan can appear as an angel of light. He can appear as your dead sister. You know, he, I think he can appear as the angel Moroni to the Mormon Joseph Smith. Just because you have a dream that really looks convincing and might even have some biblical truth in it, you really got to test your dreams against the written mm-hmm. Word of God. And even if they're yeah. really convincing, if it contradicts Scripture, then that's a $3 bill. Satan can appear as an angel of light. Hmm. Or it could be pizza, too, Tom. It could be pizza. I eat pizza. <laughs> it depends on the kind of pizza. Though, here's, <laughs> here's the thing I find interesting. Right now in Iran, hundreds of thousands of women, Iranian women, are having dreams and visions of Jesus. They're standing up. If you read some of the latest things from Voice of the Martyrs and elsewhere, they're standing up for their faith in the public arena. Now, that's unheard of in a Muslim country. They are meeting in large groups proclaiming the name of Jesus, and many of the men are now coming to Christ. When you know a dream is from the Lord is when it changes your life, and their life is being changed by that. That's the power of it. Not just a temporary thing, but a permanent change, and that's the level of dreaming that I really pray has to happen here as well, because we're so inundated with the gospel here, I'm afraid people don't hear it much anymore. Mm-hmm. All right, um, here's a topic. Uh, You know, the Lord delights, obviously, in revealing himself to us in the Word. Um, So why is it that we often have trouble understanding parts of Scripture? So we, well, yeah, we scripture is just this, hard to uh, understand a, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's it's very hard, and I think we have to understand that. Um, you know, the scriptures were not written in English; they were written in, in a different language. And so there's there was the the age old debate that was brought up in a in a seminary class when I had to go through all of that. And the professor asked the question: Would you rather have um, an atheist using sort of the principles of Bible interpretation, getting back into the original languages, getting into sort of understanding the connections of the text, the history, the context, all of that. Would you rather trust their interpretation of what the scripture says, or would you rather um, take somebody who is completely untrained, maybe has never read the Bible, but is a believer, and opens up to a passage and tells you that's what that passage means? And it was quite the lively debate uh, that night in class, but I think that's the the question that the listener is getting to. And, and I think uh, the answer to that question is both, you know, right at the end of the day, it's it's not an either or kind of question. There, there's an illumination that happens to the realm, uh, realm of the spirit that I don't think is is possible for somebody who is not following Jesus. And yet at the same time, I, I think we've all experienced how two different people can look at the very same scripture and come to two very different conclusions about what that scripture says. And, and some of what is happening there is as you try to get beneath the, the surface of the English language and, and what were those original writers, what, what was their mindset? What were they attempting to communicate? I mean, in, in that sense, the Bible is, is like any other written historical document in, in, the, in the sense that it had an author and that author was working with God, empowered by the Spirit to communicate a message. But we're also 2,000 years removed from some of those messages. And and how do we interact with the text, both allowing the Spirit to illuminate the text for us, but also using um, sort of the reliable methods of scriptural interpretation to, to get into the text? So I don't know if that necessarily answers the question, but that question is a good one, and it certainly yeah. came up in class. And like I said, it led to several hours of debate. There's a little there's a little bit more to this. So, you know, the, how do you study and handle the Word of God when you come across passages— that seem weird at first, but you don't have time to do like an in-depth study. 
For example, I read today in Ezekiel how God told Ezekiel to lay on his side for over a year as a representation of Israel's iniquity, Ezekiel chapter 4. So um, one of those just questions, like, how do you, uh, uh, how do you understand its meaning? I think, you know, I think Bill, I, part I, of that, I'll too. That, oops, I, I'll tell you, Bill, I recently bought the ESV study Bible. Wow, is that a good study Bible. Oh, awesome. The English Standard mm-hmm. Version is yeah. the most literal, that and the NASB are the most literal translations. But at the bottom of the ESV study Bible on every page, it has good study notes for the difficult verses. I can't recommend enough. I mean, but, you know, even Peter said regarding Paul's writings, there are some things in them difficult to understand that the untrained twist. Mm-hmm. I mean, even Peter recognized Boy, some of Paul's stuff is kind of hard to get. And even Paul said, now I know in part, then I shall understand fully. I I think 97% of the Bible is pretty easy to understand. But there's that 3% where I'd like some study notes and and to get some help from some scholars. And again, ESV Study Bible is just great. Awesome. I, I need to take a little break. We'll be right back with more Guy Talk in just 90 seconds. back with Guide Talk. There's a question that came in from my wingman, Terry. He said, uh, when addressing the topic and location of first century Israel, they referred to it as Palestine. As I understand it, Palestine was a designation of the Roman Empire after they had conquered and triumphed over the land of Israel. It was renamed to be a point of subjugation and insult to the Israelites, one to disparage and malign. Minus the fact I've never found the name Palestine in the Bible, my question is this. Are we not just validating the Roman Empire's anti-Christian, anti-Semitic, secular worldview by using their vernacular, but in essence agreeing with it? Kind of a simple, easy question. Tom Parrish? Didn't Justin have some good research on this? I thought Justin, you know, no. Justin, you were saying before the show that you, I was waiting like for you crushed it on the research on this one. Yeah. Well, no, honestly, I, I was silent because now I was thinking through what I did have, and I'm like, I don't think it's that good. But I'll, I'll throw it up there, and you guys, you guys, can, you guys can clean it up. You know, I, I think I was this, the, the, this listener has done a little bit more research into, you know, kind of the, the history behind the, the use of the word Palestine to indicate that you know, the, the region of, of uh, ancient Near East and, and you know, and Israel and, and, and Middle East area. So I, I but I, I think for me, part of it just kind of goes back to, I mean, over the course of history, different places have been called by different names, you know, depending on who's in control and who's in power. And obviously that's part of what this listener is alluding to in the historical context of um, this word Palestine. And I, I I tend to not refer to it as that, you know, I think I have maybe in the past, but I think in the same way, you know, when we talk about Ephesus, you know, I will say something like that's modern day Turkey, you know? And so I think it's more talking about giving a, giving an understanding of when you use a biblical name or a phrase, we may or may not necessarily remember where that is because it's been, it's called something different now. And so I think sometimes we can use different, um, different words, different categories, for different regions um, in, in order to help us understand where in Scripture it's being talked about. And, and the reminder that we're talking about an actual place and that our faith is, is a historical faith, you know. So 
you know, the same way when Scripture talks about bringing the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, we could say North America was probably the ends of the earth in terms of the context, you know, from from a first century, you know, uh, perspective. But um, so it's it's so that, that those were just some of my thoughts where I think I, I guess I don't get overly tripped up on the semantics necessarily of the, those different names, but just as a way to help, you know, kind of relate the different geographical areas so that the people know and understand what area of the world we're talking about. Nice job, Justin. Tom Parrish? I agree with that. It makes a lot of sense. Um, don't think I've got a lot to add to that. I would just simply say for the reader, when you read it in the scriptural context, when it's called Israel, that's what it is. I like when I see things written out today by authors or whatever, and they will say Israel, and then maybe in a bracket they have, you know, uh, modern-day Palestine, because that's what, the, that's what the United Nations calls it now. So it's helpful to do that, but it's still Israel. All right. Anybody else want to wait in on that one, or should we move on? Move on, Bill. Move, move yeah, on. That's, that's three, more material, three, three more minutes of material than I have on it, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, your thoughts about modern-day prophets. For example, God spoke to me and commanded me to warn you about whatever. Well, you know, I, there is such a thing as the gift of prophecy, and some uh, very conservative Christians think that all the spiritual gifts stopped when the New Testament was completed. I don't see the Bible teaching that. So I still think there are gifts like tongues, interpretation, prophecy, healing, uh, mercy, etc. So I, I, I think it's possible God does give someone a word for you to share with the church or with someone else. But Paul says, don't despise prophesying, but test everything. So I, I, you test it. And, I mean, I had a woman call me uh, or emailed me recently, and what do you think about this certain pastor on television who is having visions the, of the end of time and that we're in the end of time? And my response was, I have learned to take that kind of thing with a huge grain of salt mm-hmm. because of just the way that – and I don't doubt the person is probably sincere, but like I said earlier in, in the show, I had a dream when I was in ninth grade. I sincerely thought – something huge was going to happen because of a, a dream I had where Jesus said 18 years and nothing happened. Yeah. So you just got to test everything against scripture. And uh, there you go. All right. If you go to YouTube right now, there's probably more of these prophecies on there than I've ever seen in my life. And uh, I've observed charismatic Lutheran churches that words and prophecies and that were a big part of the whole church. And we had to do some real discernment and and dissect that a little bit so that, just like Tom's saying, we really find out what God's Word is saying. So what I've done for the fun of it is I've actually started making a chart of all these different prophecies that I'm getting into on YouTube and writing down the salient points and then beginning to look at all of them together. And there is some similarity to some of them, but I tell you, there's a lot of diversions too, and the Lord doesn't contradict himself. So I agree with Tom. Be careful with it listen to it. Uh, But, you know, we've been doing this for 2,000 years, and I've had friends that moved to Israel because they had a prophecy on the second coming, and they've now moved back from Israel, and they're still pretty angry that they moved. So you got to be careful. All right. Thank you, Tom Parrish. Peter? Yeah, I I concur with those guys, too. I just, um, is it possible that people can have words and can have a sense of what might be happening in the future or, or some things that um, would be difficult to have verified by the scriptures. Well, I mean, clearly the, the scriptures themselves teach that, uh, at least in the early church, 
that kind of thing would be happening on a, on a fairly regular basis, whether it be dreams or visions. That uh, seems part of the deal. It's, it's even right in Acts 2 with what's going to happen uh, at Pentecost, where old men will see a dream dreams and young men will see visions and, uh, and, and people will speak words. That kind of stuff is all there and present. Uh, I think there's theologically the historical debate about whether those things came to an end once we got the scriptures, because we didn't need those signs and those words and those wonders to verify the reality of the kingdom. And so once the scriptures began to take shape in the fourth century, there are some theologians who would say that God doesn't speak through those ways anymore. But boy, I, th I think some skepticism is warranted. I mean, I, I don't know what the ratio would be, but if you told me that 99 out of 100 times these things uh, that people feel very passionate about uh, and maybe feel like they have a word or a dream or a prophecy or something like that, uh, Parrish, I'd love to see your chart because I would love to see, I, I, I'm guessing 99 out of 100 times there, there are things that either don't come true or prove to be inconsistent with the kingdom. I, I, so I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater at, at all in any of this, but I think to to have your faith be governed by such things, I think is, uh, you know, you can be set up for so, some disaster in those yeah. moments. Well, we need to take a little break. We're going to come back. Extended version of Guy Talk is happening uh, in the first half hour of the next hour. So keep your questions coming, 877-933-2484. My power panel, once again, Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, Justin Jepson, and Peter Kapsner. Uh, let us know what your questions are, 877-93-FAITH. We'll be back with one more half hour of Guide Talk coming up next. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.